Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 30 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lundrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. This is the big 3-0, guys, and we have another special surprise for this episode just for you. We will, for the main topic of this episode, be doing an interview of our fourth overall interview, our second in-studio interview, and our first interview in a very special category. You will know what that category is when we get to our special guest. But first, we are going to talk about a couple of topics, of wide-ranging topics. We are going to be talking international politics and then very localized politics right here in our home turf of the state of Virginia, the great commonwealth of Virginia. Be sure to follow all of our content, as usual, on our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of platforms where we are available on podcasts and social media, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And of course, feel free to support the show at righttakepodcast.com slash support. So first off, the, to talk a little bit more about international politics, of course, we did talk about Cuba in the previous episode. We want to address this one particular story that really shows the priorities of this current administration and how much they are willing, how things are back to normal as far as American foreign policy is concerned, in that the old order is back of America bending over backwards for the liberal international order slash globalist order. This is from townhall.com. Headline, Biden invites United Nations to investigate America's systemic racism. Ooh. U.S. State Department, held by Secretary Anthony Blinken, announced Tuesday that the Biden administration would invite United Nations officials who investigate racism and human rights issues to visit the United States and tell Americans and the rest of the world how racist our country is. Calling it, quote, leading by example, Secretary of State Blinken said in a statement that the invitation is proof that the Biden administration, quote, is deeply dedicated to addressing racial injustice and inequalities at home and abroad. So, I mean, first off, this idea, this ridiculous idea that American racism, quote-unquote, whatever in the world that means, is somehow equivalent to actual human rights abuses is it, it just, of course it's absurd. We all know it's absurd. There is no, if there are any human rights abuses going on in the United States, it's what's happening to the January 6th protesters in Washington, D.C. jails right now, but that's a topic for another episode entirely. I think it's just worth pointing out some of the members of the UN Human Rights Council who will be doing this investigation. Just so you have an idea, we're being investigated by our peers here, guys. These these are people who are perfectly unbiased, who will deliver fair judgments to us. Among other members of the UN Human Rights Council, China, the People's Republic of China. Cuba, you know, because they clearly, they clearly don't have any human rights violations going on. They're being protested right about now. Mexico. And this, this is rich. The Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. <laughs> These are the people who are going to be investigating us, telling us that we're... Oh, and Russia, too. The Russian Federation, because, you know, why not? You basically, they basically took the entire Soviet, like the old, uh, the old red-aligned Soviet bloc, like the international Soviet order, to investigate the United States. Because, I mean, all these countries were aligned with, with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. The Cold War never really ended, did it, I suppose. I mean, according to neocons, it certainly never did. Well, now we're surrendering. No. <laughs> now, now we surrendered. Yeah, this is, the, this is the terrible alternate ending to the Cold War. It's, it's, there's a reason this ending was cut from the theatrical release. But yeah, I, I just, I, it, you know, this, this is one of those things that obviously infuriates you. You can't help but kind of laugh at it at first, but then just be infuriated by it. Not even by how ridiculous and hypocritical it is, but because what are we doing to stop it? What are we, what can we do to stop it? We can't because the old regime, the old guard is back in power. Biden's going to welcome this with open arms and continue to 
repeat the same rhetoric that was used against us by the Chinese at the Alaska summit with Anthony Blinken to his face. They said, oh, we don't, we don't have the, the right, we should not have to listen to you because you are a, a racist country. And of course, Blinken's not going to deny that because then that would enrage their far left base who thinks there is racism still in this country. So what better way to sign off on America officially being racist than having the UN sign off? Because the UN is the ultimate final power and authority as far as these people are concerned. But even if it wasn't the issue, this fake issue of racism, even if it was a legitimate issue, let's say the if it was the opioid crisis, something that is an actual issue in this country that Americans are facing, it would not be acceptable to turn any of that over to the UN. It wouldn't be acceptable to invite human rights I don't know, human, what do they call them, uh, human rights watchers to come take a look at American pharmaceutical companies who have been getting Americans addicted to opioids, which would be a legitimate, you know, that's a legitimate criticism of the United States. You've got American pharmaceutical companies that have been responsible for getting Americans addicted to this stuff. It would not be acceptable to invite international observers to come into the United States to observe anything of that nature, even if it were a legitimate issue, uh, because that's a violation of our national sovereignty. You know, where are all of the America firsters out there decrying this and claiming that this is a complete violation of our national sovereignty that we should you know used to the right in America they you would hear cries like let's kick the you know let's take the United States out of the UN and kick the UN out of the United States and something like this would just bolster that argument but other than town hall there's not a lot of news outlets that I could find that was really covering this I mean this is kind of an outrage this is basically a slap in the face to every American who believes in national sovereignty, who believes in legitimate sovereign nations that govern their own affairs. I mean, the idea that we need international observers from third world countries to come help us fix our racism issues. I mean, Americans are big boys. We can, we're big boys and girls. We know how to take care of this stuff on our own, or at least we thought we did. Uh, apparently the Biden administration doesn't believe that we're responsible enough to take care of our, I mean, that was why he was elected, remember, to fix America's, to heal America's racial wounds. Apparently he's not up to the task. Now his secretary of state has to invite people from Venezuela to come lecture us on how we can fix racism. It also just goes to show how much they are committed to this lie of systemic racism. The idea they actually consider the fact that, oh, maybe African-Americans don't get into as many colleges as whiter Asian-Americans do without the help of affirmative action. That's equivalent to literal concentration camps in China, for example, or the people of Venezuela being starved by their own government. You know, that's they they believe it just like Biden unironically believes this nonsense that everything to do with Trump is the worst thing to happen to America since the Civil War. They believe that racism in America is literally the worst thing, the worst human rights violations going on in the world right now, which, as far as I'm concerned, is just first world problems in a nutshell. Right. Again, first world problems like, oh, we may not be a certain percentage of representation or it took us this long to get a black president. Like, you know, oh, that's 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 oppression. That's this is violent oppression, you know, just like. You know, words, violent words are oppression. It's just, it shows how coddled they are and how much they are truly committed to pleasing their crybaby whining base. They will literally treat this like it's like it's another Holocaust happening in America, basically. But I also want to address something that Blinken said in the statement he released on this, because one of the issues that a lot of countries are having around the world who have mixed race populations or who have African minorities is black Americans exporting critical race theory and their grievances to other countries to try to project what their experience or their perceived experience in America is in other countries. This is an issue in Brazil. This is definitely an issue in France. I mean, and it's now becoming an issue in the UK. You even have Black Lives Matter chapters popping up in the UK of all places. But listen to what Blinken said. 
He said that uh, the, of course, the United States issued the formal invitation to the UN export experts and the Human Rights Council, yada, yada, yada. But he says, I also welcome the UN Human Rights Council's adoption today in Geneva of a resolution to address systemic racism against Africans and people of African descent in the context of law enforcement. I look forward to engaging with the new mechanism to advance racial justice and, and equity. So this is something that he's uh, he's welcoming on the global stage. Like he wants to he he welcomes the idea that we're going to that we're going to export this kind of uh, black grievance culture to other countries. And this is I mean, you got countries like France where d- there is no race in France. Like you're just French. They don't even classify people by race. In fact, there was a woman who was trying to project this this black this BLM narrative and accusing a police officer who was who happened to be of African descent of being a traitor to his race and everything. Well, they find her for that because in France you can't consider somebody of a particular race because if you're French, you're just French. Period. Like you're just you're just of the French ethnicity. So when, when France is more based than us, that's just absolutely tragic. Absolutely. Yeah, that's just that's just ridiculous. But it, it really it goes back to what they consider to be ethnicity. Like they consider anyone who is culturally Fr- uh, French to be ethnically French, whereas in America, we've got 150 different ethnicities and every each ethnicity gets their own special privileges and stuff like cultural recognition, and all this nonsense. But uh, I do want to take issue with some of the uh, the pushback that this town hall article quoted from conservative commentators. So Josh Hawley said, uh, he tweeted, quote, Joe Biden's priority is getting the UN to investigate America for racism. Maybe the president should devote some energy to investigating the origins of COVID-19. So this is an example of how the right could do a lot better, right? You don't even need to bring up COVID-19. There's no need for that. This, this issue stands on its own. He could just criticize the Biden administration for bringing this up, period. Say, we don't have a problem with racism in America. Move along. Logan Raddick of Newsmax said, a U.S. State Department invites U.N. racism investigators to visit the U.S., the same U.N. that has an obsession with targets, uh, that has an obsession with slash targets, the only free country in the Middle East. Again, there's no reason to bring a second issue into this. Obviously, he's talking about Israel. There's no there's no reason to mention that at all. This issue stands on its own. He should say America is not racist, period. This is a violation of our sovereignty. If he doesn't want to go as far as to say kick the U.N. out of America, he should at least say the U.N. should never be invited to investigate the U.S. for anything. We're the most powerful nation in the world. I mean, we basically we we are international law. Michelle Perez Exner, she is the comms director for Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, said, quote, let me get this straight on an island about 90 miles from Florida. A communist government is cracking down on its own citizens for peacefully protesting, but the Biden administration wants the U.N. to investigate the United States. Again, she's bringing a second issue into these three conservatives, Hawley, this lady, um, Perez Exner and Logan Raddick, they're bringing in Israel, Cuba and China. China Basically, all they're calling for is, you know, America shouldn't be investigated. America should be doing the investigating. That's basically what it is. Right. But whenever the right tries to counterpunch on something like this, they always have to deflect rather than just taking the issue, especially this is especially true with racial issues. Anytime that a racial issue comes up, rather than take the issue on and confront it and refute it, the right will deflect. Why are, like, why are you spending time on this when we have other priorities? And that's essentially what Josh Hawley is saying. He's saying Biden's priority is getting the UN to investigate America for racism. Maybe he should devote more energy to investigating the origins of COVID-19. So he's not saying that this isn't important. That's that's my issue with him. Like he's not coming out and saying this shouldn't be an issue at all, period. He's basically criticizing the Biden administration for making this a priority. But that's just a pet peeve of mine, how the right deflects and tries to focus on their pet peeves rather than just taking on these issues head on saying, no, racism isn't a problem in America. And if you think it is, we have a problem with you like that would be the if they want to win, that would be the correct approach to take. 
Yeah. And speaking of Republicans who really don't know who their enemies are and what they need to defeat their enemies, the next topic we want to go to is somewhat similar in tone. And also it is more or less kind of a preview and segues very nicely into our very special surprise coming up soon. And that's with regard to Virginia politics and the stunning reality that perhaps despite being located right on the edge of the nation's capital, Democrats in Virginia might not be as crazy as the right would like to portray them. So, Jacob, what's going on? What's your take on the Virginia Democratic Party? So Virginia Republicans love to focus on fiscal conservatism. This is what they this is one of the things that they just love to embrace. They want to define themselves as the party of business, the party of small businesses, although in many ways they kind of are the party of big business. But this is what they try to wrap themselves in the cloak of fiscal conservatism. It really is kind of the influence of Northeastern Republicans who for you know for years and years going back to the Republican Party's founding, the Republican Party was the party of business. It was the party of the big Northeastern tycoons and all that stuff. The problem, though, in Virginia is the Virginia Democrats, including Governor Ralph Northam, are not necessarily fiscal radicals. The, the state of Virginia is – it ranks in the top 10 in pretty much every category, whether it's roads, general infrastructure, education, quality of life, average income. I mean across the board, Virginia is a great place to live and people are moving to Virginia from all over the world because they want to live here. So when you've got a state like that that's on you know a very high priority state, it's doing extremely well and it's been under continual democratic rule and then they recently took both houses of the state legislature the governor's office they've had it since i believe 2009 then you're kind of at a loss if you're going to continue to harp on fiscal conservatism because obviously any fiscal liberalism that's been going on in virginia it hasn't been hurting the state at all so this is from the richmond times dispatch it says as the economy recovers virginia revenue surplus reaches 2.6 billion Notice there's surplus. Like this isn't a deficit that Virginia's run. This isn't like California or New York. It says the first look at Virginia's revenue performance in the fiscal year that just ended is eye-popping. Despite a predictable dip in June because of shifted tax filing deadlines, Virginia finished finish the fiscal year on June 30th with almost $2.6 billion more in tax revenues than it had forecast in the state budget. Compared to the previous fiscal year, the state collected an additional $3.1 billion, growing by 14.5% instead of the 2.7% estimate in the budget. Northam will work with the General Assembly in a, in a special session that begins August 2nd to determine how to spend $4.3 billion in federal aid that Virginia has received under the American Rescue Plan Act. So there are $2.6 billion in the black, and this is before they received their additional $4.3 billion from the federal government. Most of the surplus, the amount of revenues above the budget forecast, came from income taxes paid by self-employed professionals and investors on capital gains. It's the most volatile and least predictable source of state revenues, but it grew by $1.4 billion in the fiscal year compared to the previous 12 months. But the state also collected more in two other critical categories, income taxes withheld from payroll, which reflect jobs and wages and sales. Withholding taxes grew by $635 million or two percentage points higher than forecast, and the state collected an additional $460 million in sales taxes as consumers began returning to stores while still making purchases on the Internet. Sales tax collections grew by 12.4% compared to an estimate of 4.7% in the state budget. Income taxes paid by corporations grew by $500 million, almost 50% higher than a year ago. Tax rates haven't changed. That's key. Tax rates have not changed, but collections rise with income, sales, and other economic activity. So this is trickle-down economics in, at work. This is Reaganomics at work in Virginia, and it's happening under Democrats' watch. They haven't raised taxes. 
but income in Virginia has skyrocketed, so therefore the tax in uh, the tax intake, the collections from these people, has increased as well. And also the increase in capital gains tax shows that a lot of rich people are moving to Virginia, and of course they're paying taxes on their capital gains in this state. So Republicans are hard pressed to point out an example of how Virginia uh, Virginia Democrats have run the state into the ground because they're clearly not running the state into the ground. They're, they're not like AOC asking to spend trillions and trillions on a Green New Deal. Correct. Now Virginia is extremely lucky because it's close to Washington D.C. Virginia, uh, Loudoun County especially, became kind of the Silicon Valley of the East Coast. So in the, because of the federal government, all the military presence and the high-tech sector in Loudoun County, Virginia, the entire state feels a little bit of a trickle down. It's kind of like Massachusetts. Like Massachusetts is always going to do well just because you've got so many universities there. They've got, the, they've got Boston and the people there aren't going to elect a Democrat who's going to ruin their state financially. But, you know, if Virginia Republicans want to win elections, they're going to have to grab something other than let's lower regulations and lower taxes because while most people do want lower regulations and lower taxes that's not going to cut it in a state that's had that has a budget surplus and economic activity is increasing so then what would some of those suggestions be like for example republicans in virginia should make uh the next election the upcoming election with glenn youngkin should be more about say cultural and social issues definitely because that's what that's what mobilizes people to turn out and vote I mean, if it's not all about the economy. Uh, obviously, Bill Clinton coined the term, it's about the economy, stupid. And in a recession uh, at the time, I mean, in the 90s. Back then, yeah. Yeah, at the end of Bush's, Bush Sr.'s term, we were kind of going through a mini recession at the time. That was on people's minds. But when you're not in a recession, uh, which we're not in a recession right now, I mean, the only thing really that's, that's aggravating people is gas prices and inflation is starting to kick in. Other than that, uh, the cultural issues do matter, and that's what galvanizes people to go to the polls. That's what galvanized people in 2016 to show up in record numbers for the Republican candidate. It wasn't just the let's lower taxes. I mean, in fact, if anything, Trump was the most the furthest left on the economic spectrum of any Republican candidate in the field. But he galvanized people because of social issues, because of cultural issues. And if the Republicans of Virginia, including the Yunkin campaign, actually want to win – they're going to have to motivate people to turn out. They're going to have to motivate people to defeat critical race theory. They're going to have to uh, motivate people to vote against a party that elected a governor who believes it's okay to kill a newborn baby. All right. And now it is time for the highlight of this episode. We have with us today our fourth ever guest and our first guest who is a political candidate, the Republican nominee, for the 49th district of the Virginia House of Delegates, Tim Kilcolan. Tim, welcome to The Right Take. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's great to have you here, man. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about what you do, where you come from, who you are, and what your background is prior to running for the seat in the Virginia House of Delegates. Okay, so I'm, I'm from Crystal City, and my, my background's definitely in campaigns. I am... I consider myself a populist activist. I have worked on campaigns in Pennsylvania, in Massachusetts, in Illinois, in Iowa, and in here in Virginia. And I'm I'm now run for office for the first time uh, because this is a really important time in Virginia politics, in American politics, and specifically in Crystal City politics with this new Amazon headquarters being built. All right. And you, of course, you hinted at it. That is going to be the main thing I want to ask you about first and foremost. At the top of your website, and apparently the big issue of your campaign, is you are running to fight Amazon. The big tech giant Jeff Bezos' baby. We all know it. We all hate to love it and love to hate it. So tell us a little bit about what specifically you plan to fight against with regards to Amazon. 
Okay, well, first I, I want to address what, what the big issues with Amazon are, what they're doing to our Virginia communities. Uh, right now in Crystal City, they're building their second giant headquarters, HQ2. Uh, they're paying for this with $750 million of the Virginia taxpayer. Now, Governor Northam and his legislature, they hiked taxes on Virginians uh, while they were passing this giant subsidy for this disgusting monopoly. Uh, and Amazon's repaid that generosity by the Virginia people by they censored anti-lockdown writers uh, because they knew that the lockdowns was good for their business, even if it was bad for Virginians. They blacklisted President Trump because of his uh, tax reform and his pro-America, anti-Red China trade policy, which empowered their competition. They slandered American patriots with their unregistered super PAC, the Washington Post. They resorted to outright bribery to try and get the Jedi contract from the Pentagon, which would have made America less safe. And now they're actually paying to put critical race theory in Arlington Public Schools. Right now there's a curriculum developed by Ibram X. Kennedy, which Amazon generously donated, paid for entirely, to be taught to every school child in Arlington Public Schools, at least when the schools are open, which isn't very often these days. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's disgusting. It, every aspect of it, from shutting down small businesses to indoctrinating our kids, Amazon really is like a kraken with its tentacles in just about every aspect of our society. So, Jacob, you had an angle about this in, with regards to Amazon and uh, Tim's platform that you wanted to ask about. Yeah, so apparently there's going to be a $2 billion surplus uh, this month in Virginia. And one of the ways that they've managed to build this massive surplus, which unlike California, other states, which are, which are completely running in the red, Virginia Democrats aren't, at least they're not going in that direction. But the reason why they've been able to do this is through massive tax intakes. An example would be through the, the establishment of large corporations in Virginia that are paying massive corporate taxes. A lot of people who have moved here with wealth that are paying capital gains taxes, which aren't, there's no guarantee that those people are going to continue to live in Virginia. So I just want to kind of wanted to ask you about that. Uh, you, you know, you can't really argue that the North administration and Democrats have been fiscally irresponsible when they've got a $2 billion surplus which is, seems to be the angle that a lot of Republicans want to hit every time, in, you know, in every state race. So, yeah, I just want to kind of get you to weigh in on that. And, um, you know, a lot of people may say they may counter your points against Amazon and say, well, at least Amazon is going to contribute to the state budget. Okay, so two things on that. One is you're right that they haven't uh, pursued some of the New York policies of, that would sink the economy instantly. But long term, what Northam has done in the past two years with his legislature will be crippling to the Virginia economy because one of their first priorities when they got into Richmond was to mandate that every municipality, every county government uh, engage in collective bargaining with these really ruthless unions like the Teamsters or the AFL or the, the school unions. And long term, that's going to create a gigantic fiscal crisis, both at the local level and at the state level. We're not going to feel that this year. We're not going to feel that in five years. But if they continue to just give these union handouts year after year after year, you're going to see a situation like Illinois, where the state government and the local governments are completely insolvent. And they have promised the moon to these unions and are getting nothing in return. The second point is... You're right that we can't just run on economic issues. Uh, that's what they tried in 2017. They had nominee Ed Gillespie, 
and he did not want to talk about any social issues. He wanted to run as far away from any of those things as possible. And he still got branded a racist mm -hmm. and he lost in a landslide. So you're right that we can't just focus on economic issues. We have to talk about every conservative value. We can't cede any ground to the, to the domes from here. And uh, what would you say to those who would argue that Amazon is going to add to the budget so that Virginia can't afford to pay these pensions that these public sector employees are going to bargain for? So uh, we all, we've all seen what these corporations do. At, now that they've got this headquarters here and they're going to pretend like they've created a bunch of jobs. Now, obviously, if it's coming with $750 million from the Virginia legislature, that's actually Virginia taxpayer creating those jobs. But in five years, in 10 years, Amazon's going to threaten to leave if they don't get another handout. And then they're going to, if the state gives in and gives them a handout, they're going to try that tactic every five years. They are now going to hold our governments hostage, demanding more and more subsidies or claiming they will go leave and take their jobs with them. Mm -hmm. When that's premised on a lie because these jobs were created with Virginia taxpayer money. Amazon has not created any jobs. The $750 million that we paid to Richmond created those jobs. Yeah, another thing is the fact that it's just going to you know, bolster rent prices in this area. And <laughs> I mean, rent, rent in this area is already insane. It's going to, because these are going to be a lot of high tech employees. I mean, it's not going to be like Amazon warehouse employees coming in, I don't think. Uh, no, no, it's, it's going to be high income, far left corporate types from Seattle. And yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna double rent prices in Crystal City, in Bailey's Crossroads, in Seven Corners, um, and they're they're really gonna change the landscape of Fairfax County in particular. I remember hearing about that because I, of course, I previously in another life I lived in Pentagon City, and I remember my dad was texting me when uh, he sent me a news article on that new uh, Amazon headquarters that they're building, and of course it shows the the development art, the, the artist's concept of what it's going to look like. It's this big, hideous glass, green building, like something you'd see in the Tokyo skyline. And he, my dad was telling me, yeah, you better be ready for your rent to, to go up next year. And of course, the construction ultimately did get delayed by the pandemic, of course, but ultimately it is moving forward. And when that happens, yeah, rent prices are going to go up, cost of living is going to go up, and it's just going to be terrible for the hardworking citizens in this area. Whereas all these, you know, these transplants from other states, these yuppies, these Californian migrants are going to be the ones taking those jobs yeah i mean you're looking at a potential san francisco i mean you get a we've already got the high tech sector in loudon county that's driven so many lower income people out of the market and i was even talking to someone who runs a charity there and he was saying that the homeless people you wouldn't think it um, but there's a huge homeless problem in loudon county even though it's the richest county in the country so i could see a potential situation like that developing in arlington county um so what would you say to those who would argue that Amazon is going to go somewhere and those jobs, those, those high income jobs are going to go to some state in there because it's not whenever you have a company like Amazon that opens up and it's not just Amazon, it's any high pay in industry. It can be oil industry. It can be, you know, fracking, any gas. But anytime you have a high end industry like that, those employees, they end up spending money because they're making higher salaries than most employees are in any industry and they're going to create jobs through their spending. So people would say, well, if we if Amazon didn't come here, they would have just gone to a different state. So how would you uh, like? So apparently, you seem to feel like the downsides outweigh the upsides to Amazon coming here. Oh, so yeah. how would you respond yes. to someone saying, "Well, we would lose not just the high income jobs that yes, they're raising rent, but also the spending power that all those employees are going to bring to the state." Well, the spending power—it's—it's it's not Amazon's money. It's the seven hundred and fifty million dollars in subsidies the Virginia taxpayers giving them. Uh, if, if you recall, Amazon actually wanted to build their second headquarters in New York, mm -hmm. and they were offered, I believe, a billion dollars by Governor Cuomo. Yeah. 
Uh, and the New York people, they, they were actually smart and they said, no, they said, this is not going to help people in Queens. Mm -hmm. This is, you say it's going to bring jobs, but really you're just taxing the hell out of us to pay for it. Yeah, people in Queens, they weren't going to fill those jobs. No. no nobody no. in Queens that lives there would have filled those jobs. And nobody from Crystal City is going to fill these jobs. Now, if, if people want to help the local businesses, want to increase spending, the way you do that is by banning future lockdowns. And that, that brings me to, uh, to the things that we can do to fight Amazon here in Virginia, just in the Virginia legislature. Uh, for starters, we can ban lockdowns from ever being posed at a municipal level or by the governor again. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, then people are going to feel comfortable investing in local businesses, building more local businesses, investing in Crystal City. And that does actually bring up an interesting point, because when the lockdowns started happening after coronavirus, a lot of people were arguing that they were unconstitutional. But there is actual precedence going, uh, there's actual precedent going back to the founding fathers when there was, say, a smallpox epidemic that broke out a governor or a mayor would force a lockdown in order to keep stop the spread of the smallpox. In a situation like that, the executive does have certain leeway and uh, to based on his judgment to impose a lockdown. But like you say, when you have a precedent like coronavirus, that does give the people hindsight to say, okay, we need to set some certain guidelines around this. Because most states, they don't have laws on the books that say in the event of a pandemic, this is what the governor can do in this situation. You know, if we have deaths rise to this number, then he can take these measures. They don't have any kind of rules around that. But that does raise an interesting point. I haven't actually heard if Republicans have been have been proposing this in states to set guidelines for a future pandemic of what the governor and the executive can do. Now they they have proposed uh, states like Pennsylvania. They they have okay. done that. I also I want to push back on the notion that these lockdowns were constitutional. I know certainly Northam argued for that. Uh, there's some precedent around the founding time, but not for these long, drawn-out lockdowns, especially not when the, the risk of the illness was so low. And the First Amendment is really clear that you have freedom of assembly, uh, specifically for po political issues, and they were just shutting down any assembly that, uh, that was conservative in nature, while at the same time promoting the BLM riots. Mm -hmm. And what Governor Northam did was most definitely unconstitutional. Well, at least if you have something codified in state law, then when people challenge, if a governor does overstep that state law and impose a lockdown, when people bring that to the courts, the courts are going to be a lot more likely to strike that law down or to strike that uh, that action uh, by the executive down than they would if there's no law in the books. And the executive argues, I have the right because we're in, you know, people are dying, we're in the middle of a pandemic. But yeah, you're you're definitely right. A lot of the a lot of the actions they took, even based on the precedents that going back to the founding of the country, they were definitely oversteps. Especially in California, California. I mean, uh, it was completely arbitrary. You know, banning houses of worship, but at the same time letting gyms open and stuff like that. That were uh, was clearly arbitrary based on the whims of the politicians. Yeah. So Tim, tell us about a few other issues in your platform aside from the fight against Amazon. And of course, you hinted at critical race theory as well. There is no shortage of issues affecting the lives of everyday Virginians, especially over the last few years. What are some of the other key issues you want to fight for in the House of Delegates? Uh, yeah, so another big one is to, is to keep our schools open. Uh, right now, they they claim it's over the pandemic. There's no science to back it up. The unions have, have kept schools, public schools in much of the state closed for all of, all of last year. They claim they're going to open up in the fall, but that's probably not going to happen. They're going to say there's a new Delta variant. We need to keep schools either completely closed or partially closed. AKA the India variant. That's what it was yes. originally called. They yes. want to be politically correct about it, but we are not going to let them get away with that. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. And what we need to do is to, is to outlaw that, to say 
if if we're paying taxes for public schools, those schools need to be open. Uh, another thing we need to do is, and this is related to Amazon, is provide tax relief for all Virginians. Uh, specifically, that surplus should be given back to the taxpayers. Uh, this $750 million that we've given to Amazon, we should demand they return it. Uh, we, we can pass taxes that would, uh, would impact Amazon and then give that money back to the taxpayers they stole it from, from the small businesses and Virginia families that they robbed. Uh, we also need to uh, ban Vax passports because definitely. Uh, that's definitely a personal choice of people's. Uh, the science is very much divided on that issue. And the idea that uh, government buildings, government schools are mandating people inject themselves with a with a mRNA vaccine, which had never been fast-tracked before, that is deeply concerning. And that is something we need to stand against. Agreed. Well, on the tax issue, I would just like to point out that one of the points I made was about the surplus. You could still keep the surplus if Amazon, of course, Amazon isn't going to go anywhere at this point, I, I don't think. But if Amazon, say, they go through and they build their HQ2, you could still keep that $2 billion surplus, just shift the tax base away from small business owners and individuals from the state income tax and put that burden on Amazon because they can definitely afford it. You can still, you don't have to sacrifice your budget surplus. Ab absolutely, absolutely you can. And with regards to, of course, the national scene as it relates to Virginia politics, of course, ever since Joe Biden seized power, we have seen a hard shift of the Democratic Party further and further left on just about every issue we can possibly imagine. Uh, Tim, what are some examples you have seen, if any, of Democrats here in Virginia shifting to just unacceptably left-wing positions? Uh, well, right now, uh, way too many of the Virginia legislatures right now support uh, defunding the police and abolishing prisons. We've seen a gigantic sp spike in crime, particularly in Fairfax County, uh, from this anti-cop, pro-BLM rhetoric. And even the supposed moderates, uh, like my opponent, who seems on a personal level to be a nice guy, but he doesn't have the courage to stand up and say, this is lunacy. Uh, some people belong in prison. We do need police. We do need to defend our cities from crime. And and the fact that there aren't don't appear to be any Democrats in Virginia right now, at least at, in public office, who were willing to come out and say that is deeply concerning and shows what a stranglehold Joe Biden and his left-wing activism has on even our state party. Exactly. And of course, speaking of, you know, those who have strangleholds on the state party, we have, of course, as the Democratic nominee for governor of Virginia this year, Terry McAuliffe, who, friendly reminder, he is a high-level Clinton stooge. He is way in deep in the Clinton circle. So if he gets elected governor, we're basically just going to have a Clinton proxy as governor for another four years again. And we can't have that happening. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a, a funny story I know of, of Terry McAuliffe is actually when his, uh, when his wife was having his, his child, he was supposed to be driving her to the hospital to deliver the baby. He actually stopped and made her, made her wait in the parking lot while he went into a fundraiser to collect a check for Bill Clinton. That is how much of a little proxy for the Clintons this guy is. He is a political hack through and through. If you think Northam's bad, McAuliffe is 10 times worse. He did a terrible job as governor the last time he was there, and that was with the Republican legislature blocking what he was doing. So if, if he gets control and has a Democrat legislator to enact his crazy policies, it's game over for Virginia. Yeah, that's what I was pointing out to Eric in the before the show started, is Northam actually considered leaving the Democrats in caucus and with the Republicans shortly after he was elected as a state senator because he couldn't go along with the fiscal liberalism of the Democrats. Now, they talked him out of it, but um, it, compared to Northam, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, compared to McAuliffe, Northam is actually somewhat of a fiscal conservative. 
So if if we got uh, if we got McAuliffe in, not only would we be dealing with a lot of the socially liberal policies that Northam supported, but we would also have to probably end up having to sacrifice our right to work status as a state. Yeah, well, Northam is ac- is actually right now. He, he is trying to get rid of that right to work status. Uh, the the House of Delegates actually passed a bill that would remove right to work. It got killed in the Senate. Uh, Northam is, is no friend of the Virginia workers, but you're right. McAuliffe will go way harder on that issue. Uh, if, if he has a Democrat legislature, he will undoubtedly push that mm-hmm. through, uh, which, which would be even more devastating uh, at the county level. You mentioned critical race theory, how Amazon is pushing for that in Arlington County schools. Can you uh, just talk to us a little bit about what exactly is going on with that? And first of all, maybe give people a brief. We've talked about critical race theory a lot, but maybe just kind of help help the constituents and the voters out to understand what exactly critical race theory teaches children and what Amazon is doing to promote it in Arlington County. Yes. So uh, critical race theory, it started in the 70s. It's a left-wing ideology uh, that, that views our country as inherently racist, people as inherently racist, and it, it basically teaches people to, uh, to despise their country and view everything through a lens of race, view all outcomes through the lens of race, and not really be able to see beyond that. And a particularly hateful strand of critical race theory was developed by a guy named Ibram X. Kendi, who designed the curriculum that Amazon is paying to put in Arlington Public Schools. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi was actually paid for by Amazon to come give a Zoom virtual seminar to Arlington students uh, last uh, Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day or whatever they want to call it. They had him give a seminar just saying anti-American, openly anti-white, racist hate speech to our students. And that's what I think is is great about Glenn Youngkin, uh, our governor nominee. He is actually uh, taking a stand on the social issue, which is something Gillespie wouldn't do. He is saying that his one of his first, if not the first things he will do as governor of Virginia is ban critical race theory from being taught in public schools. Mm-hmm. And that that's absolutely right. Well, one thing about critical race theory is it it's so radical that the average person, when you explain it to him, they don't believe you. That's one of the that's one of the difficulties in getting north. Because most, I guarantee you, most Democratic white voters don't agree with critical race theory. If you ex- sat them down, and explain what it is, what it's teaching their children, that's basically teaching their children to be ashamed of who they were and how they were born, and be ashamed of their ancestors and their history. They would not agree with that. Even liberals, they wouldn't agree with that. But the problem is when you try to explain to people what critical race theory teaches, what it does they just simply don't believe you. Like it's almost like it's, they don't believe that something like this would be possible in America. And Christopher Rufo, he, he's constantly given examples, even screenshots of what critical race theory of books, that textbooks that are being taught in schools of critical race theory. And you've got liberal teachers commenting on his tweet saying, I'm a teacher and we've never taught anything like this. This stuff does not, you're making this stuff up. And he's presenting evidence, hard evidence that it exists. And Many people and and a lot of teachers, they simply refuse to accept it. They don't want to believe that this is being taught just because it hasn't come to their school district. But the thing is, uh, with cities like Washington, D.C., with affluent areas like Arlington County, Loudoun County, which is, of course, going through a big fight over critical race theory, it starts here. And once it's completely taken over here, it's eventually going to trickle down to poorer, more rural districts. The idea that we can somehow withdraw into rural America and not be affected by what happens in urban America is a complete myth. This is where the culture is started. This is where the commerce is. So the fight really is here in stopping this anti-American ideology. So with Amazon funding something like this in the county they're going to be in, 
Virginia taxpayers, especially white Virginia taxpayers, are essentially being – they are being asked – not really asked. They're being forced to fund an ideology that's going to turn their children against them because it's not just a matter of turning the children against the country. It's turning the children against their parents because they're being taught that white people are inherently racist. They come home. Oh, mommy, did you know that you're racist? Daddy, did you know that you're racist? And it, it's really – it really is a community buster the same way it is a country buster. And I think in, a, in many ways that's kind of the idea. I have my my own thoughts about why, and I've, we've discussed them on the show briefly about why big corporations like Amazon would support critical race theory, why they would support Black Lives Matter, which is essentially racial Maoism. Um, so I was just I just want to ask you, why do you think Amazon is supporting critical race theory? What, what what's the reasoning behind that? Well, I I think uh, American values uh, support uh, support a free market, support entrepreneurship, uh, support uh, always investing in the future. Mm-hmm. And if you're a monopoly with a ton of power like Amazon, that's really scary. If you're Jeff Bezos, you do not want the next generation to, uh, to be entrepreneurs, to invest uh, in their futures and the futures of their country. You want them to view everything through a class-minded, race-minded mindset where everyone fits in their little box and uh, they, need, they need subsidies to help them achieve even uh, adequate level of, uh, of life. And I, I think that the, the American dream really is what Amazon has a problem with, and critical race theory is a way to stamp it out. So by teaching children that – just help me understand where you're coming from. You're arguing that by teaching children that they will discard the American history of entrepreneurialism. Yes. So, for example, one of the things Ibram X. Kendi teaches is that it's racist to say that uh, America should – is a meritocracy or that America should be a meritocracy. Right, right, okay. Uh, Kendi says that's a hateful thing to say, uh, that anyone who says it is a racist, even though they don't even know they're a racist, but just by saying it, it, it makes them a racist. Mm-hmm. So and, if I'm a – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, and, and obviously Amazon would, would love people to have that mindset because in a meritocracy, people are, are willing to invest in, in new companies, in, in new entrepreneurship, in uh, new schools new uh, new avenues to better themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a threat to Amazon's power. That's a threat to Jeff Bezos' power. So we've identified the problem. What would you argue is the solution? We have seen, uh, I believe it's 27 states that have either have laws proposed that are going through their legislatures or have already passed laws to limit or outright ban. Most of them are outright banning the teaching of critical race theory. So in your opinion, if you um, once elected to the Virginia state legislature, what will you propose or what will you support in dealing with critical race theory? Uh, well, with, cr- with critical race theory, I will definitely support uh, hopefully Governor Youngkin's uh, plan to ban it from our schools uh, completely, from uh, Virginia public schools. But there, there's more stuff that can be done to fight Amazon. For starters, we can pass a common carrier law that means so long as they collect these liability shields and these campaign finance immunities – uh, they can st- they have to stop discriminating against Virginians and Americans, and they have to respect the 14th Amendment on their platform. Uh, Ron DeSantis has been pushing a, a common carrier bill in Florida, a uh, kind of rough draft bill of it actually, actually passed. It's uh, being debated in the courts right now. We need something like that in Virginia. Uh, we also need to ban future lockdowns because so long as there's the threat of lockdowns hanging over our businesses, nobody's going to invest in local businesses and Amazon's just going to completely eat up Crystal City and then all of Virginia. 
So help us understand a little bit about the common carrier. Is that Does that mean that if someone wants to publish a book, self-publish on Amazon, that they can't be banned for their political opinions? What, what, what exactly does that, if they're going to be in Virginia, how does that work? Yeah, so common carrier laws, they've actually, they predated the founding. And they were that there, there are certain industries, uh, often government licensed industries, government subsidized industries, that, uh, that were so essential to uh, the basic aspects of a, a free market and the trade of information that you couldn't restrict people's access to it based on their belief set. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, it was inns in, in smaller towns that at the founding era, they said you can't uh, deny service to people mm-hmm. just because you disagree with them. Uh, it was it was later used for uh, telephones, uh, so you couldn't cut off service to someone's uh, house because you didn't like what they said. And uh, and we need to do that for, for tech companies like Amazon. Right now, Amazon... Uh, through these government subsidies, through this complete liability shield that they were given to them by the courts misinterpreting Section 230, and through the Virginia Attorney General Mark Herring refusing to prosecute Amazon for making tons of in-kind contributions to Democrats by Mm -hmm. boosting their ideology, through these government actions, Amazon, which at this point is a state actor, is actively squashing conservative voice on their platforms. And it's only going to get worse. Twitch has blacklisted President Trump. Alex Berenson's book, Criticizing the Lockdown, was banned. Ryan Anderson, who criticized the transgender theory, he was banned from Amazon. And it's only going to get worse until states start passing common carrier laws. But that's the thing a lot of people got to think about. When you're dealing with tyranny, it's not just in the form of government. You can have government tyranny and the taxpayers. That's what people vote for to make sure that there's checks and balances. But when you have corporations who are unaccountable to voters who are completely unaccountable to their consumers who have a monopoly on something like this, you do have to use government to step in in order to right that balance because we don't have, when the founders created the country, they didn't envision Amazon. They didn't envision Google. They didn't envision the tech era. Really, that's a lot of people argue, well, the First Amendment doesn't apply to corporations, and they're correct, but states do have the power to regulate corporations to make sure that corporations aren't trampling the rights of their people. Well, especially when those corporations are literally admitting to working with the government. We heard from the Biden White House just the other day that they are working actively with the social media companies, with Facebook and with others, to censor, quote, misinformation. Well, who defines what misinformation even is anymore? It's differing opinions of an as-of-yet unresolved issue. So it really is a scary time. And again, we are definitely glad to hear that, Tim, because we on The Right Take here in previous episodes have discussed how sometimes state action, government action is the only solution. The free market is not going to work this thing out anymore. We've got to take action into our own, own hands at this point. Well, I, I would actually say that what we're doing is protecting the free market. I, I think a great analogy is the Heart of Atlanta Hotel. Uh, now, this, this was a hotel that the state of Georgia had at one point mandated segregation. They had, um, they had given complete liability shields for as many racially discriminatory practices as the Heart of Atlanta Hotel uh, wanted to impose. And now the heart of Atlanta Hotel was actively refusing to serve black people, despite being the only major hotel in the region at the time. Um, and, and there was a lawsuit that went to the Supreme Court uh, after the, uh, the federal government had passed a common carrier law of sorts, the Civil Rights Act. And the government said uh, that basically they were going to protect the free market, uh, protect every race's access to this free market by enforcing the Civil Rights Act. And we need a, a new Civil Rights Act at the state level that protects uh, the diversity of opinions, the diversity of political beliefs. 
And I think uh, if we pass a common carrier law, it'll force the Supreme Court to take a look at this issue. Yeah, because if you have certain political beliefs and you're not able to buy, sell, and trade, you're not able to express those beliefs, even if it is the, the free market that's inhibiting you from expressing those beliefs, you're not living in a free country. You might as well be living under a communist dictatorship at that point because the, the end result is the same. So I want to ask you about also about public sector unions. What is your opinion on public sector unions? Should they play any role in state government? Uh, absolutely not. No, they should not. Uh, and uh, this is my issue is isn't just with public sector unions. My issue is with this uh, this notion of collective bargaining that uh, that we're taking in general. Like I said, one of the first things Northam did when he got control of the legislature was pass a mandate that regardless of public sector unions, private sector like private contractors, um, the counties and the municipal governments had to engage in collective bargaining with these unions, and that is the uh, the antithesis of a free market. It is wildly unfair for Virginia taxpayers, and it, it will destroy our, our state budgets. Yeah, because the taxpayers, they don't get to bargain with the, the no. employees because they're, they're the ones footing the bill. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tim, once again for coming here. Tell our listeners and anyone who wants to possibly support your campaign where they can go to follow the latest progress on your run and how they can support you. Okay, so I, I have a site, KilcullenForVirginia.com. That's K-I-L-C-U-L-L-E-N, uh, KilcullenForVirginia.com. Um, that's also the name of my Facebook page, KilcullenForVirginia. And uh, my Win Red page should be up by Monday, and that's going to be my name, Tim Kilcullen. So if you want to contribute, do it, do it through Win Red, and uh, uh, you can check out more of my platform on the Kilcullen Virginia site. And you can keep track of my events on, on the Facebook page. So check out my Facebook page. Like it if you can. Uh, check out my Win Red page. And check out my site, KilcullenForVirginia.com. And tell your friends to check it out, too. All right. KilcullenForVirginia.com. Support this guy. Like he said, he is a MAGA populist activist. He knows what needs to be done to handle the crucial issues of the day. He's not your typical stereotypical Republican. He knows that those days are gone. And this is a new Republican Party here in Virginia and all across the country. That is all the time that we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to episode number 30. Once again, as always, be sure to follow all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com, and all of the platforms and the podcast websites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And of course, if you are feeling so generous and want to support what we do at the show, righttakepodcast.com slash support. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next week, guys.